0: the show. Uh, today's episode, we're going to be talking about some interesting uh, new technology or new applications of technology for recording from brains of, uh, of people and trying to use those recordings to uh, help uh, people speak without actually speaking. So recording from the brain and producing speech, that's that's the general topic for for today's episode, and it comes from an article that has been receiving a decent amount of uh, attention in the press. And so we're going to, you know, talk about the article and also try to get behind the scenes a little bit to what's really going on here with this technology and, and with this uh, with this research. Very cool stuff, but I think, you know, uh, one of these uh, places where it might be slightly overhyped. But before we get into that, I do want to make a plug for uh, for the pod and say, if you enjoy what you're listening to, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you want to give us feedback, we'd love to hear your feedback. If there's anything you want to hear about or things you'd like to hear differently or, or what have you, or just you have thoughts on the topics, especially that if you have thoughts on the topics, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can go to our Facebook page at Cognation on Facebook.
1: So the paper for today so uh, let me just describe it a little bit more so this is one that just came out in nature which is one of the highest impact journals there is and like joe said it's been appearing on some press recently the name of it is called speech synthesis from neural decoding of spoken sentences and it's by gopala anuma chipali josh chartier and edward f chang it's Edward Chang's lab in San Francisco. And then Anuma Chipali is a postdoc and Josh Chardier is a graduate student. Right, so what is this paper about? This take this paper takes a significant amount of unpacking, I think, because there's a lot of complex things going on in this. So the bottom line, again, is they're producing a form of speech from neural recordings. So the end output of this is a sound that comes out and the input into it is brain recordings. I'm going to, I think it might help actually to just read the abstract because even though it's got a lot of jargon in it, this might be a good way to kind of introduce the topic. Uh, so here we designed a neural decoder that explicitly leverages kinematic and sound representations in, encoded in human cortical activity to synthesize audible speech. Uh, Recurrent neural networks first decoded directly recorded cortical activity into representations of articulatory movement and then transformed these representations into speech acoustics. In closed vocabulary tests, listeners could readily identify and transcribe speech synthesized from cortical activity. Intermediate articulatory dynamics enhanced performance with limited data. Decoded articulatory representations were highly conserved across speakers, enabling a component of the decoder to be transferable across participants. Furthermore, the decoder could synthesize speech when a participant silently mimed sentences. Okay, again, so that's part from the abstract in the paper. So let's right. try to unpack that and make some sense out of it and see what we're really getting at.
0: Yeah, I think the... Uh, these nature articles are funny because they actually start with the results and discussion and then go into the methods. But I think it would help everyone, including ourselves to start maybe by, you know,
1: talking about the methods a little bit. Yeah. And I think it's helpful that I always like when I'm looking through a paper to sort of visualize what a, what a person is actually doing in the experiment and sort of step-by-step what's happening.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so I think first, who are the people who are being recorded? And then on the uh, the side of listening as well. So I think those are the two sets of people here. They're the people whose brain responses are being recorded and then those who are listening to the reconstructed speech.
1: Okay, so let's start out with the people whose brains were recording. So who are we looking at here? So these are
0: five participants who all have electrode arrays. They're basically called electro- Corticography, ECOG uh, arrays that are implanted in their brains, basically because they have epilepsy, and they have some pretty severe, profound forms of epilepsy, and they're going to be receiving some treatment. And there's some medical reason why uh, they need to be having the you know parts of their brain uh, recorded from.
1: Basically, they in epilepsy patients, you want to get a clear sense of where the functional parts of of brain are still intact and where there's some area with damage so that, uh, I guess, if you're excising some tissue from the brain, you don't want to take anything that's fully functional. So you want to be very precise about how you localize any possible surgery to the brain and maximize the amount that you're stopping seizures afterwards.
0: That's right. You want to find the parts of the brain that are potentially causing, you know, these seizure events and avoid parts of the brain that are, for example, involved in producing speech, uh, and which is, it, you know, the, the part that we're particularly interested in for this paper.
1: And as a, as a side effect of doing this, these epilepsy studies, uh, everybody wants to try and get an experiment in on them because it's such high resolution and high precision brain scanning. So they have electrodes directly. They have a number of electrodes directly implanted into their brain. So this will give you a much better signal than, say, fMRI or uh, other sorts of, of uh, brain scanning technology.
0: Right. And you just you can't get a better uh, source of you know uh, brain activity in in awake behaving humans than this. In the sense that these uh, electrodes are implanted subdurally, uh, so they're right on the surface of the brain, not on the skull, you know, but right there on, on the brain. And it's, there are pretty large arrays as well.
1: Yep, and picking up real-time information exactly as it's happening. And this kind of stuff gets used on, I mean, you can insert these things in monkeys, but when you're trying to understand something like uh, speech and language comprehension and production, uh, it's not gonna help to do it on animals that don't have the kind of language capabilities that we do.
0: That's right, exactly. and you know for these um uh, participants these uh arrays that they're recording from are all on the left side of the brain
1: um uh, I, I think that's that just kind of i think that's just how they they just selected participants based on that that they 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 had electrode arrays implanted around some left hemisphere language areas
0: that's right yeah exactly there so these are all people who have electrode arrays yeah in on the left hemisphere around areas that are imp- important for speech, uh, especially speech production. But,
1: and I yeah, think it, some of the areas that they record from, they, this is part of unpacking this article too, is they there's a lot of abbreviations and, and um, jargon, and it gets a little deep into here, but some of the places that they recorded from our uh, ventral sensory motor cortex, superior temporal, gyr- temporal gyrus and inferior frontal gyrus. And these are intended to be areas that are um, either speech speech uh, processing or speech production areas in the brain. So just before the uh, speech processing commands go out into the actual focal tracts or uh, you know, tongue and lips and all those areas.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the different uh, participants have different sized arrays and in slightly different locations on the brain as well. So, uh, you know, for example, participant one has a very large array uh, versus participant five has an array maybe half that size. And I guess so, you just
1: take what you work with, you can't you work with what you calculate
0: that. that, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, and I think that has some consequences as we look at the performance uh, of the models for the different uh, participants where participant one has you know very good results and participant five has not as good results. And then there are sort of intermediate results from the other uh, three participants.
1: Yeah, and I guess one feature of this too is since you're using, I mean, it is a very low number of subjects you might think for a, an experiment in general, but um, this is a pr- pretty rare thing to get participants that have electrodes in these areas that are just ready for an experiment. I mean, one, one thing that you might be concerned about is individual differences and, you know, whether or not this is representative of the population at large if they're patients who have some sort of neurological disorder already. So that's a concern, uh, but I think um, damage is not so extensive that it would be a serious problem. Right, and I think, for
0: me, the bigger issue there, in terms of transferability of the results, you know, the way that this was reported in the literature, I mean, sorry, in the media, the way this was reported on in the media, like there was an article in the New York Times, I think, and, you know, some very prominent uh, news outlets re- wrote about the, the results. They were really sort of saying, you know, you can record from a person's brain and produce a, a voice that speaks for them, essentially. Mm-hmm. And you could give a voice to people who don't, who have lost the ability to speak for whatever reason. Yeah. And these... You know, that, that is a potential use uh, of a technology like this in the future. However, none of these participants had lost the ability to speak. In fact, they all spoke as part of the development of the, uh, of the models and uh, these experiments. So yeah. and you know, that was a key part of, of, the, of the process is them talking. So yeah. th- these are not people who have any problems with their speech production. And so, you know, thinking about how this would translate to someone who does have, uh, you know, some uh, neurological deficit that is, you know, causing it to be difficult for them to speak, you know, it's it's you know, it's an open question uh, as to whether this would actually work in in those situations.
1: You know, the most exciting thing and the reason why we want to talk about it in the first place is because it does point to some potential towards this direction.
0: Right. Yep. So th- that's those are the people. And okay, what the they're people. what they're doing is um, they're speaking they're reading uh some some words and some sentences uh, they're taken from some standardized uh corpuses that are used in speech production research so they're reading from these corpuses and they're so the here here's of... a
1: uh some some of them, some of what they're doing is just free reading. So, uh, one participant read from Sleeping Beauty, Frog Prince, and the Tortoise, The Princess and the Pea, and Alice in Wonderland, and <laughs> so and so forth. Right. So, they, some of the participants just read a whole bunch of sentences from a database, and one was reading from fairy tales like this.
0: Right. So they're 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 uh, reading all of this stuff and their brain activity is being recorded from these, uh, these different electrodes while their voice is being recorded. The, the, with the goal then of taking the outputs of the neural activity, the electrical output of the neural activity recorded at these brain surface electrodes and decomposing that into some signals that can then be recombined into sound that basically becomes something that another person can hear and interpret and understand basically.
1: Yeah. And I will note here that the, it's for data nerds, I guess, the sampling rate is really high. They can sample it about 3000 Hertz, which is 3000 times a second. In contrast, you know, typical neurons are firing around, you know, 10, 20, 30 Hertz. they're recording at a really high rate, much faster than you'd be able to record from, um, but much more resolution than you'd get from any other means of recording, I think. Yeah, I
0: mean, that was amazing. I mean, think about how much data that must be.
1: Just a I mean. load of data, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I will note here, this, is, this was an exciting part for me. The low-frequency component was also extracted with a fifth-order Butterworth bandpass filter, Oh, yeah. I, I love really the Butterworths.
0: The... <laughs> those are, those are some that, our favorites.
1: Apparently, ones. the Butterworths are just, that is the way to filter these days. Oh, I would absolutely. have gone with a fourth order Butterworth filter, but they they did it. They went all the way to five.
0: <laughs> yeah. Ours go to five. Yeah. No, yeah. No, that, 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 was, I was struck by that about how, yeah, just how much data they're getting at such a high resolution. It's, yeah, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. It's a amazing. massive amount of information. And then they have to, uh, run this through some, all kinds of filters and stuff like that, and one of the main points of this article is that they're using what they call an articulat- articulatory kinematics, or what they call articulatory kinematics, which is um, the movement of different parts of your vocal apparatus. I, I like how they say this. Now, nor- what they say is normally... They would measure this per person by sticking some sensors on different parts of your of your mouth. So you put some on your lips, some on your tongue, uh, some on your teeth, I think, and then have you talk so you can see how those parts move. For this experiment, they just used a computerized model of this, so they didn't actually record from individuals, you know, how their mouths were moving. They just used a general mathematical model that had been constructed somewhere else
0: right exactly so i mean the key thing here is this intermediate step i mean you could imagine a a step where the way that that i would have thought about doing it which would have been obviously would not have worked uh, but you know just in my naive approach to thinking about this would have been said let's take this output from the brain and look at what people said and basically try to find a model uh, that, that
1: uncovers that directly features. can be can be directly derived from just the neural output
0: right exactly so like somehow the the words themselves are represented in the neural output right yeah. which is not at all what they're doing and it's not at all what they're, doing. they're not they're not like you know decoding words per se what they're actually doing is they're decoding the motor movements of the mouth and the vocal tract and they're using those decoded motor movements of the vocal tract to infer what sounds would be produced by those motor movements.
1: Which is cool, I must say. That is cool. That's
0: pretty cool. That's pretty pretty cool. I mean, it, it takes advantage of a, a one of the main ways that you know these speech synthesis algorithms are working now. So speech synthesis algorithms, though, know, that produce speech, you know, there's all kinds of different ways to do it. I mean, some of the better sounding approaches actually just mostly take recorded speech and then filter it in different ways and combine it in different ways. But you can have, this is like a purely synthetic speech. So this is not like just chopping up words and putting them together. This is like really creating speech from, you know, a whole cloth, you know, just you know, so it's numbers. like you've
1: got a model. It's like you've got a model of a person with a with a tongue and air going through and all of the noise making apparatus. And as you manipulate that model, you can make words from it, just like a person would make words from it.
0: Oh, that's right, exactly, exactly. And so, you know, th- that is the 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 general approach. And they basically then you know have. Uh, two separate deep learning algorithms, neural networks. The first one basically takes the neural output and creates these uh, kinematics. um, To how the
1: mouth would move around.
0: Right. And then the second part takes those kinematics and basically produces something that is essentially features of the... Sound waveform. Yeah. And so, those features are then con- reconstructed into actual sound.
1: Okay. So it's in a way, it's like making speech more intelligible by highlighting the kinds of features that normal human speaking would make.
0: Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So connecting the dots between if there's this type of movement in the mouth. It would produce this kind of sound, and the, then the kind of, so we
1: get more of the kind of regularities that you'd get from the way that humans make sound versus the way that sound processor a computer would make sound.
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so the the net result of all of this is basically the algorithm is essentially learning from the, the how similar or different these sound features are that it's produced from its model and what is actually in the recording.
1: Well, here, let me, an example of the speech synthesis saying bright sunshine shimmers on the ocean, and then an actual human saying bright sunshine shimmers on the ocean. Bright sunshine shimmers on the ocean. Bright sunshine shimmers on the ocean. ocean.
0: Yeah, so as you can hear from that, you know, there's uh it definitely produces some speech-like sounds and you can understand what's being said, but it's not like super clear. And this of course is going to be one of the better examples they're going to share with us the uh the better examples. There there were a lot of examples where people were not able to transcribe this correctly. So, oh, that's the other piece to this mm-hmm. experiment. They took the produced speech from this algorithm and they put it up on mechanical Turk. So this is a a service from Amazon that you can basically have people, you know, fill out forms or participate in short experiments and things like that. And you pay them a little bit of money. It's a great way to sort of crowdsource, Mm -hmm. um, you know, experiments, you know, for, of this type. So they got a bunch of people, uh, to listen to this and basically, uh, transcribe what they heard but they couldn't just transcribe any old words they were given a choice of you know either 50 or 25 or 10 words to choose from and they had to basically say of those which were the words that they heard and there was a case where there was like one word at a time and there was a case where there was you know a sentence at a time yeah and so it was like a closed they called a closed vocabulary test and in other words, not like anything that you would be able to hear, but you have some sense of what the choices are. Even in that case, it wasn't close to perfect. I mean, they were, at best, you know, uh, getting a, you know... Uh, I guess, you know, what were the exact numbers there in terms of...
1: There were... Uh, percentages? It was different for different for different passages, I think. Some were done perfectly, but some were like, you know, 50% and somewhere 70%. So it was different depending on different passages, I guess. And I think this closed vocabulary bit is meaningful too, because there's a lot of ambiguity in speech. And if you're limiting what you know is going to be in that speech to, you know, 50 or, or you know, a hundred words, it's a lot easier to disambiguate them. Think of the Yanni versus Laurel thing where you've got that ambiguous speech. It sounds like one or the other. I think a lot of these passages when they're a little bit difficult to discriminate, if you didn't have that closed set of words, it would be pretty tricky to figure out exactly what the sentences were.
0: Right, exactly. So, you know, this is all just speaks to the quality of the decoding, right? It's the the quality of the decoding is, is pretty good, but not great. I think that's that's sort of the takeaway. Yeah, it's definitely better than random. So, I mean, that's the cool part, right? I mean, just the you fact can hear that... it. I
1: mean, you can hear it when you're listening right. to it, especially when you've been told what the sound is. You, you can definitely hear, and it sort sure of sounds like speech.
0: Yes, exactly. And this has you know, all been produced by an algorithm that was only listening to neurons, mm-hmm. right? And it's just like taking recordings from the brain and producing speech. Kind of cool.
1: That's what it's doing.
0: That is what it's doing. And one of the things that they they pointed to, they were really emphasizing this point of using this articulatory intermediary. So the idea of really going after you know, the, the motor act of speaking as being like the way to do this. And one of the things they wanted to control for was that, well, okay, when these guys are actually speaking, they're also hearing what they're, what they're speaking. So you could imagine that some of the neural signal could be related to... This feedback, right? This or feedback, exactly, from they're the sounds they are hearing.
1: They're hearing what they're saying, and that could be part of the signal.
0: Right. So then they had one of the participants, this participant one, which, you know, whose data seemed to be the best, uh, they had this person mime the words. So rather than actually speak them out loud, to move their lips and mouth as though they were speaking, but not actually speaking. In that case, the results
1: were pretty similar. Similar. A little, not quite as good, but similar. That's right, exactly. Which, I mean, to me kind of, again,
0: points up a little bit the, the problem with the, the argument that they're making that this is like a very nearly an assistive technology for people who have lost the ability to speak, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because if you've lost the ability to speak, how much motor control do you have to begin with? you know, if you don't have that motor control, you know, how similar is your neural representation of those movements? You can, like, imagine yourself speaking, which is, I guess, basically what you'd have to do here, right? You'd imagine yourself speaking, but those representations are going to be quite different. Well, that's
1: a question. That's a really good question. Um, It's something that maybe almost used to be a philosophical question. It's certainly a linguistic question, how how closely is the way that we think mapped onto the way that we speak? Uh, and there's a paper that these same researchers had done fairly recently or or uh, some the same lab group anyway. Uh, and I'll read a quick description of this too. Uh, I think the perspective they're taking is that they're revealing that the brain's representation of language is closely related to the way that speech is made. This it uh, description was, the new research reveals that the brain's speech centers are organized more according to the physical needs of the vocal tract as it produces speech than by how speech the speech sounds. Linguists divide speech into abstract units of speech of sound called phonemes. Uh, and uh, But in reality, your mouth forms the sound differently in these two words to prepare for the different vowels that follow. And this physical distinction appears more important to the brain region responsible for producing speech than the theoretical sameness of the phoneme. So in other words, this is sort of an enacted cognition kind of viewpoint that language is really all about the production of language, and that our representations of language are about the production of language. So they would make this argument. I I, I don't know how, I don't know that there's any evidence necessarily shown here, but I think that's the response they would have.
0: Yeah, but uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think it's the distinction between internal dialogue, right, miming of speech, and actual speech production. Yes, I feel like those are three very different things.
1: I, I think that they certainly are different things. I guess they may be just pushing the argument that there's a lot of similarity in the kinds of representations that they would have.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. No, there's no question. You know, the same brain areas are involved. But I'm just thinking from the perspective of training a model, and if you're training a model on speech vocalizations, uh, you know that's based on the articulatory mm-hmm. system. Yeah, and you're doing that from people who are speakers and trying to apply that to someone who's lost the ability to speak through paralysis or you know uh, muscle weakening, etc. It's it's totally unclear to me that the representational structure of that would be similar enough to transfer the model
1: well certainly in the in some some older models of working memory there's the idea that something gets rehearsed in memory by essentially sub vocalizing it that you know when you're trying to remember say a phone number or something it's the same process as saying that phone number out loud and repeating it out loud it's just that you're suppressing the actual speech of it so I mean there's precedence of this is a as an idea of what you know, this internal language of thought is—that it's it's just like speaking, except without the speaking part.
0: Right. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but then but, again,
1: I mean, clearly, clearly, when you're thinking, there's a different—you know—you're associating at a different pace.
0: Right. And and you know, the point that I'm thinking about here is there's probably some feedback that you're getting from the muscles, you know, because you know the way that that motor control works is you know it's that constant. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a loop. Brain sends a signal to the muscle to move and it has a you know, next action that it's queuing up in, a, in anticipation that that happens the way that it's expecting it to happen. But if it doesn't, there's feedback. That error signal hmm. is a key part of the whole representation. And I'm sure it's part of this model. And if you're, if you're not actually moving, then you don't have that part of the model. That part of the model is missing. So, for example, like they, what they didn't do is they didn't have a control condition where they had someone just think about the words. I mean, this is an experiment we can all do with you know, in our minds right now. How different is it to make the motion with your mouth of speaking the word and actually speaking the word?
1: I guess when you're just thinking about the word, how realistic is your imagination of saying that word? I mean, you can think about it very abstractly. You can sort of have something on the fringe of awareness that you that you may be thinking about, or, or you could, you know, you could be visualizing yourself actually mouthing the word and saying it. So it could be a stronger trace, or it could be a weaker trace. But I I think clearly our thoughts are not; they don't have the same strength as an actually vocalized word. In the same way, I guess that imagining moving your arm is different from actually moving your arm.
0: I think this, it, it speaks a little bit to one of the questions we were talking about a few weeks back when we were talking about the idea of you know having this brain mesh where everyone's brains are connected.
1: The through. Elon Musk, like the wizard hat thing. Yeah,
0: exactly. Because if what you're transmitting, and you could imagine filtering it in all different ways, you could filter it such that you are only passing the internal dialogue, or you could filter in such a way that you're only passing the internal representation of speaking. (laughs) So you could basically, you know, this, that'd be like, the that'd be like the analogy here. It's like, if you think about speaking to someone, you could pass that information and then potentially that information could be decoded.
1: Wait, so is this a way to censor yourself? So if, if your minds are connected, you can still kind of hold some things off. Yeah, it's like want an authentication
0: to, like, like, code, right? It's like, right. all right, now I'm communicating with Raw. You know, I, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna speak to Raw with my
1: mind. Well, I don't think you would want my raw, unfiltered thoughts, would you? I mean, no. <laughs> there's where it's tough to make. It's going to yeah. be hard to make sense out of it because they're so they're so subjective.
0: Right. Exactly. That you know that that that's the thing. You don't know what this. It doesn't have meaning for you as. A, Outside person necessarily, or it certainly doesn't have the same meaning for you as an outside person as the person who's experiencing it. That would be, that's the hypothesis, I guess. Yeah. Whereas speech has that explicit code. There's a meaning for the speaker uh, that maps in some really tight way to meaning for the listener.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to go back and say again that I think eventually in mind-brain interfaces for interpreting language or connecting people through thought. I'm gonna say again that I think the best way for communicating between different minds is actual language, the language that we have, and it's kind of optimally tuned already for communicating thoughts between us, and we wouldn't get anything more by by directly transferring less objective information between people.
0: Well, what that's, about?
1: My, that's my bold prediction, that what language about, what? works pretty well. Well, the language is
0: great. No language is, I don't, no, no, no debate there. But something that just popped into my head was, what if you had a system? Uh, I'm thinking about like a virtual reality type system where you could speak to one another, but then you had also another layer on top. So, for mm-hmm. example, let's say that you, you you know we each have headsets on, and you know the visual uh, screen, and there is like music and lighting that corresponds to the other person's emotional state.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, if someone gets a, a positive emotion from something you say, maybe the lights go up and the music tempo goes up and something like this, right? Mm-hmm. And you can kind of like, you can imagine layering on this empathic level, right? Sort of like
1: the, emojis the are.
0: Right, exactly. Visual emojis. Visual emojis and you could have it, you could be representing it through music or, or light.
1: I could see when colors. Joe is starting to get annoyed with me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so exactly. I mean, this is the kind of thing where, I mean, maybe that would be just annoying for for us. But like, maybe someone who has a problem interpreting others' emotions. This is, you know, we're on a podcast, so we're just listening to each other. So we can get some cues to what the other is feeling, not as much as if we were
1: seeing each other, right? Because we'd have all those micro expressions and all that verbal cues and maybe hands waving and stuff like that.
0: Right, exactly. And some people have problems interpreting those cues and there's a, there's a whole spectrum of people, you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of like how well they're able to interpret those cues and, you know, one very end of the spec, you know, at some end of the spectrum, you have people who are autistic who Mm -hmm. have very difficult times understanding what the other person is feeling based on their micro-expressions. Yeah. And uh, you can imagine a system that would represent that in a different way. Yeah. that there's one, there's one use case, I guess, let's just say. There's there's, there's potentially other use cases, but I agree. I do that
1: like that idea. That's, uh probably takes some um, time to adapt to it and get used to it.
0: Right, you'd have to learn the language, right? You'd have to learn the representational schema.
1: And it might yeah. be different from person to person that you're communicating with too.
0: right, 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 exactly. And then I, I guess then that sort of raises a question of like how useful that is in the sense of like, would that person who's receiving those cues how how well would they be able to use that information? I think that, that becomes a question a little bit of like what where the deficit is, right? Is it a deficit of interpreta- of like representation of the other of the other's emotional status? or is it conceptually appreciating like then what to do with that
1: yeah i don't know i don't know either i don't know
0: that's a question of utility but either either way yeah. it's like there's there's something you could do there there's a tool that could be could potentially be used yeah i Come like on. that idea all right let's patent that
1: let's patent that okay yeah all right we just did i think we just we just uh, did
0: yeah, yeah we just did we like actually we, what we did is we did the opposite we just disclosed that to the whole world so we uh we Maybe lost that. all ability to patent it. Maybe let's take a break and then come back and we can uh, talk about some of the implications. Uh,
1: so we have to do some far future speculation on this stuff. What Robopocalypsy stuff is in here?
0: You know, in this situation, it's a little bit, Specific to someone who's got an electrode array implanted on the surface of their skull So if you don't want that, you know, the implications are not or you don't need that The implications for you are not so direct right away But you could imagine a future where, for example, everyone has one of these electrode arrays implanted in their skulls You know, maybe that's a thing
1: But when the Elon Musk thing comes through Right,
0: exactly I mean, isn't that, that's kind of what he's thinking, right? Is that, yeah, there's like implantables. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You just inject them in and.
0: Right. You inject them in. That's, they that's,
1: form some sort of net over the brain and you can read and write.
0: That will be, that will be ready next week.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, that'll be very They're useful. are looking for volunteers for beta on that one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, you know, even without that, you can imagine like other systems that maybe are a little less invasive or however it works. In the, you know, in the future, it potentially could be the case that you could be opted into this program rather than yourself opting into the program, and then people would be, you know, the 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 system would be able to read your your thoughts and uh, you know, Minority Report style. You get arrested for a crime you haven't committed yet or may not ever actually commit.
1: Yeah, and I think even just having your thoughts read in general is is pretty invasive.
0: Right. I mean, we we already have Twitter. That's that's already too much. <laughs> yeah, how much how much more do we need to hear unfiltered random thoughts of every that's person? That's a good
1: point, right? That's already plenty unfiltered. Yeah, uh, this would exactly. be just the next, the absolute next level and completely unfiltered.
0: I was listening to this uh, podcast uh, about the the Chinese system of you know, recording. Just video cameras everywhere, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just surveilling the whole population, trying to get everyone in the whole population under total surveillance, and uh, that's already pretty terrifying. And that's that exists today, which is ama- really quite an amazing thing if you think about it. How much bandwidth and just compute power they're using to to make that happen.
1: There's a bit of a fundamental clash there too, because if you're if what you really want is privacy, and we're running into, into all these privacy issues with, you know, with Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. If what you really care about is is an individual's freedom to do as they want, then this is as invasive as you get moving forward. Right, exactly. So if if your belief
0: is that you should have total control over the population by you know absolute surveillance, Big Brother. Yeah. What would stop you from wanting to get inside someone's head? There's there's nothing to stop that. So you know the, you know if you can decode someone's speech before they actually say something and you can hear literally hear what they're thinking that's 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 the uh that's the output of this system <laughs> right yep. i mean, you know if it works i want to think about that now think about that for a second back to what we were talking about before the articulatory versus the representational mm-hmm. uh versions of this model right so if this is a tool that someone's using because they want to regain the ability to speak. How much control are they going to have over mm. whether it's on or off?
1: That's right. They would have. A, that's exactly. <laughs> you, know, just, you want to be just, able to express what's on your mind, but not with no filter, right? You don't want you don't want the ability to gain speech back to come with letting everything out.
0: Yeah, you want, you want to be able the ability to be quiet.
1: It has to be on one side of the sort of internal filter that you have. Right, exactly. I mean, that's actually in some
0: ways like another big advantage to the articulatory process model, right? Because, I mean, they, they actually, interesting now that I think about it. They made a big point. Uh, this is probably not why they made this point, but they, they made a big point in the paper about that they can decode silence as mm-hmm. well. So I think that's super interesting, right? That if you're going to encode... And decode speech. It's super important to be be able to encode and decode not speaking. Otherwise, you end up with this unfiltered
1: all the stuff that you're thinking about but intentionally not saying.
0: Right. Yeah. You just don't have any any desire to to have it be spoken.
1: One other thing that this paper made me think a little bit about was so we talk about biomimetic approaches to all kinds of things. So biomimetic just imitation of biological mechanisms for for doing things like you know uh biomimetic flight would be like looking at birds see how they flap their wings and figure out you know how that works aerodynamically and maybe you can find a better way to do it than engineers have done it before one of the things that i thought about here is all of our vocal tract all of this apparatus that we have to make speech is essentially kind of a wasted way to do things because you can make the same sound through a much more compact electronic source just a speaker and some kind of production unit and you can you don't need you don't need to articulate things using all of the ways of shaping sounds that we have you can do it all electronically so what use is knowing all of this vocalization kinematics to uh, making a robot?
0: Well, I think the, the, the argument would be that the advantage is that the, the, the person who's listening to the robot is a person, and so they want to hear a speech that is, quote-unquote, natural-sounding, and then having this understanding of how this speech is produced from the articulatory system could be helpful in recreating uh, these nuances.
1: You could conceivably, I guess another related question is, could you learn to understand that that kind of speech that isn't um, produced in this sort of way? In other words, could people do just as well on the speech that was directly translated from the neural signal as they could on the one that went through this articulatory um, kinematic process? Could you learn to do just as well on that? And if so, I mean, maybe it's just a bias that we carry around with us that it's easier to understand things that have these regularities, but maybe we could learn it just as well the other way.
0: Well, I think it's there's different speech models basically that you could produce that would have different results. You know, the, the vocoder approach, which is basically like a much more algorithmic approach, doesn't sound very natural and it's harder to understand certain words. I mean, the way that you would really want to do it is you like to make it sound really good. And I think this is the way that these systems largely work now is you have a lot of voices that have essentially been recorded saying a lot of different things. And then you're just trying to get the right units of manipulation, right? So is it at the level of the word? Is it at the level of the phoneme? Is you know, one word that's followed by another word that starts with a, you know, a certain plosive, you know, depending on how that works, if you have the right combination in your database of, of, already articulated speech sounds then you just basically pull those units up and stitch them together that's the way you get really good sounding artificial speech now it's just basically stitching together these pre-rendered units in the right pattern not doing this articulatory business at all
1: yeah yeah well i mean i guess that's the way to constrain things i guess i just sort of wonder how necessary is it when we're thinking about uh you know, a million years in the future as we're replaced by robots. How necessary is it that we have vocal apparatus that basically is a hose that shapes sound in a, that shapes escaping air in a certain sort of way rather than just producing it through a, a speaker?
0: Oh, no. I mean, yeah, you could, you can do a lot. If, if, if instead of having, you know, using your mouth to speak, you used like a speaker, an amp.
1: You'd be a much better singer. I'm a, a yeah
0: yeah you could do all kinds of cool stuff with it right yeah you could uh <laughs> you could do all the uh pitch correction and
1: completely everyone would have a full vocal range
0: yep you could even have and you could even have a full like backing band like right there in your yeah in, in your, your head
1: yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> that would be Maybe cool that's the future
0: that's the view <laughs> everyone's just walking around like with a whole a whole like uh orchestra
1: Music. I like that. That's, I mean, you could, you could, I'm sure somebody must have, must be doing research on how you make music with these recordings. Well, let's see, do we have any other, um, important thoughts we need to get out about this paper?
0: No, I mean, I think, um, you know, the only thing I would say, you know, to just sort of wrap it up is that first of all, it's super cool. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, the the different pieces they had to pull together to make this work mm-hmm. i mean they define these patients who had these arrays they had to you know have them speak you know, read these books and these corpuses and uh,
1: record Use it. some pretty uh, sophisticated computational models here
0: yeah two super complex deep learning algorithms as well as you know these you know really strong understanding of like speech vocalization feature sets and, you know, these articulatory models um, and then reconstruct them. So, I mean, super... So, despite
1: any small super good work. Uh, complaints that we have about the future of this, this is amazing work and really cool stuff.
0: Yeah. Gopala definitely gets uh, a PhD for this one.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> if that person does not already have one.
1: Well, I think so, he's a postdoc. I think he's okay. a postdoc Super cool. cool stuff.
0: Super cool stuff. But also, I think... Overhyped, nevertheless, <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? I mean, the the,
0: the popular press representation, the, the, I heard someone say, you know, one of these authors saying, like, you know, now you can give a voice to someone who doesn't have a voice. Well, that's not really, we're not there yet. it's a yet. good idea. It's a good idea. But for all the reasons we discussed, we're not there yet.